Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, for that is, that, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I am a real sucker for the kind of clickbaity. Um, videos online that have like tournaments of, of like the greatest ever so like you'll just click it'll be like the greatest ever basketball player and then it'll, they'll make like a bracket and they'll work you through and it's always Michael Jordan right like no no one else ever wins that or the greatest state and then they set up a tournament of states and it's like Massachusetts is like the number one seed uh, because we know that that's where we belong but I, I'm just a I'm just a sucker for for that type of thing um, if you were to make one of those with Bible verses, okay, just like a tournament of Bible verses, there's 30,000 Bible verses. Um, we all know what's coming out on top, all right? We, we heard it this morning. World's, world's uh, most famous Bible verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that he, <laughs> I'm going to mess it up. For God so... <laughs> So love the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the most famous Bible verse, partly because, for those West Coasters out there, it's printed on the bottom of every In-N-Out uh, burger um, uh, wrapper. Uh, for those fans of fast fashion, it's printed on the bottom of every Forever 21 bag. Um, it is... In the famous song, uh, we got a little bit of something for everybody this morning, uh, the famous song Ke that Keith Urban did, 
called, I've never heard this song before, but I, John Cougar, John Deere, John 316. Any fans? <laughs> Any fans? There might be a few. Um, legendary New England Patriots quarterback, Tim Tebow, um, <laughs> once wrote John 316 on the eye black under his eyes during the national championship game of Florida versus Oklahoma back in college because he was not in a national championship game <laughs> in, in the NFL whatsoever. Um, and he wrote John 316 under it. After that, during that game, when he wrote John 316 on his eye black, John 316 was Googled 94 million times. Like, wow, what a, an effective marketing campaign he had there. Martin Luther said that the verse of John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. And though this verse is great, there's one Bible rule that I have that I've heard and that we teach, and it's never read a verse by itself. Because the Bible wasn't meant to be read as just verses. And the Bible's not a collection of parables. Sure, there are some parables in it. There is one book in the Bible that is a collection of parables, uh, of, of Proverbs, and that is Proverbs. It's just, you know, a collection of Proverbs. Uh, but that, in general, the Bible is not a collection of Proverbs. In general, the Bible is a story that tells and communicates who God is and what he has come to do. And so when we come to John 3.16, we need to understand what the author is trying to communicate here, and we need to understand the context of what is happening. And so what's happening at John 3.16 is you have a well-known religious leader named Nicodemus, and he's coming to Jesus, we think in good faith, not trying to trap Jesus, and he's just trying to say, hey Jesus, what are you all about? And in that context, Jesus says a lot of things that confuse Nicodemus. And so we're going to dive into those things today. And the basic message of what Jesus is all about, according to this conversation, is that anywhere, anyone, anyone, regardless of background, can be made right with God and have eternal life. Anyone, regardless of background, can be made right with God and have eternal life. But they must be born again. Now, I feel like we need a marketing campaign for this term born again, okay? Because that is not one that is generally thought of positively in our culture today. If, uh, if I'm being introduced to one of my neighbors and say one of my other neighbors is introducing me and they introduce me and they say, hi, this is Fletcher. He's my born again friend. I don't know how to feel about that. I'm like, why'd you make it weird, though? You know, like, why, why'd you say the weird thing? Um, a lot of times when we hear this born-again language, we think of kind of religious zealots, or oftentimes the term born-again, and in fact, Barna, the Christian, um, the Christian surveying group, has actually done this. They've equated born-again with the word evangelical. And our community today has equated the word evangelical with the word hypocrite. And so when we hear born again, oftentimes, it, it's like, like, I am a born again Christian, I will own that, but at the same time, like, it makes me squirm a little bit, the verbiage there, because it's like, I know that what I mean when I say that isn't what other people understand when they hear it. And so we kind of need to look at this born again language and try to take it in outside of our cultural baggage that comes along with it and hear it the way that Nicodemus heard it. 
Because when Nicodemus heard it, he was like, what are you talking about? And so, like, if we take away all the cultural baggage that goes with being born again, and let's just consider what Jesus means when he says that one must be born again. I have four points for us today, and here are the four points. Who needs to be born again? How can someone be born again? What are the results of this, of this new birth, and why does God do all this? First, who needs to be born again? Let's dive into the passage. Verse 1, look with me. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Pharisees get a, a bit of a bad rap in the Bible, deservingly so. They can be quite judgmental. They are the ones that push forward the crucifixion of Jesus. They are the religious zealots. But in general, they're very well-respected people. And in fact, Nicodemus is referred to in verse 10 as a teacher of Israel. So not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, he's a member of the ruling council of the, Jew, of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. He's like a city counselor. He's, he's like a guy, and he's a well-known teacher. So I don't know who to compare him to, but you can probably think of some people in your community that you can compare him to. He's someone that's well-known and well-respected in the community. And Jesus refers, and, and then Jesus continues uh, here. Verse 2, we see what, what, uh, what Nicodemus says. The man came to Nicodemus, excuse me. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. All right, so a few things here. One, um, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this passage taught on before. So let, I just am going to debunk a few things as we go. First of all, we can't make too much of the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. I remember very clearly in youth group having a lesson, uh, and the title of the lesson was Nick at Night, which I just thought was so cool. <laughs> so cool. The next week was I Love Lucy. I don't know what that one was about, but it was, this was Nick at Night. And... Uh, it was, it, we made a big deal about the fact that Nicodemus must be coming to Jesus in secret, like no one wants to see him. But the passage doesn't say that, and so we, we would be better off uh, not making a big deal about that. It could be true. Maybe Nicodemus is trying to hide his coming and investigating Jesus from the rest of his uh, religious leader friends. Maybe he's just coming to Jesus at night, though. And w another thing that we can think about with this symbolism of night is that John oftentimes talks about Jesus being the light of the world. This light theme is a huge theme throughout the book of John. And so maybe it's somewhat symbolic of the fact that Nicodemus is still in darkness. Anyways, we can't make too much about this, but Nicodemus seems to be coming to Jesus, uh, not trying to trap him. He genuinely seems to want to understand who Jesus is. Maybe you can resonate with that. Uh, maybe you come here today and you're like, I don't know about this Jesus character, um, but I'm here to investigate. And I'm doing it in good faith. I'm not coming, looking for something to hate on. I'm really just coming to investigate who this Jesus character is. And if so, you're in good company, because that's what Nicodemus is doing. But Jesus, in classic, <laughs> classic form, he just says things to confuse him, basically. Uh, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus, how does that relate to what Nicodemus just said whatsoever? It, it really doesn't. It's, it's just Jesus knows, though, what Nicodemus is coming for. 
Nicodemus is coming to say, hey, what are you all about, Jesus? And Jesus just cuts straight to the point. And he says, I'm all about this. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. The Greek word here for again is the word anothen. And that word, it can be used to mean again, but it could just as easily be translated to mean from above. It, it means both things. And in fact, later on in chapter 3, we see the Bible translators translated as from above. And so Jesus could be saying born again. He could be saying born from above. Regardless, the meaning is basically the same thing. Um, and it, it practically, it means the same thing to us. I just find it interesting that Jesus could be having this from above language here. Nicodemus certainly, meant to, certainly heard it and thought that he means born again, like born a second time. Um, but maybe there's a double meaning here, that uh, it could be meaning that you must be born again a second time, but also that second birth comes from above, which is certainly true. Jesus says that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, this probably caught Nicodemus off guard big time. First of all, this kingdom of God language, it's not used uh, very often throughout John. It's used a lot in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic Gospels. They talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven frequently. John does not talk about the kingdom of God very often. This is probably one of the only places where this is talked about in the Gospel. And the kingdom of God was taught regularly. And if Nicodemus is a Pharisee, if he's a member of the ruling council, if he is a teacher of Israel, he certainly knows what the kingdom of God is. But throughout the Old Testament, we see predictions of a son of David, one of the uh, ancestors of King David, coming and being a servant of the Lord and leading the people of God where God's reign and rule is complete and total. And so they thought about this kingdom of God, this coming kingdom where God would make everything right again at the end of time. And so this is what Jesus is referring to. Now, the teaching of the day for uh, Pharisees and for people like Nicodemus was basically every Jew gets into the kingdom of God. Unless you were just horrendously uh, immoral, you would get into the kingdom of God. And so here Jesus is saying this thing that's really different than what Nicodemus has probably been teaching. Nicodemus has been saying, be a good Jew. Just, if you just are Jewish and you follow God, you're, you're fine. And Jesus is saying, no, Nicodemus, you even, teacher of Israel, must be born again, not to enter the kingdom of God, but to even see it. To even see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're so far from the truth. You can't even see it. You need a total life change before you can see the truth. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is, is obviously thinking a little bit too literally. And so Jesus goes on to explain what he means. And this is what he says. Verse 5, look with me. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. All right, so there's a lot there, okay? I'm just going to break down a couple things here. First of all, Jesus is saying that if you want to be born again, you have to be born 
of water and the Spirit. Now, there's been endless debate about what this is talking about. And one of the commentaries I was looking at, there were at least seven different theories of what Jesus was talking about when he says that you must be born of the water and spirit. Many churches certainly have interpreted this to mean that you must be baptized, that you must be saved, born of the spirit, and you must be baptized. And while I'm not against baptism, big fan, good, um, I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think that Jesus, because he does this thing all the time where he just makes his Old Testament references assuming that we'll all get it. And here he probably can assume correctly because it's Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, who he's talking to. And so he's making this Old Testament reference, in my opinion, to Ezekiel chapter 36, where it talks about the Spirit coming um, that, through, that we receive cleansing through the Spirit and through water, that it's such an intense experience of the Spirit bringing cleansing, that it's as if we're being cleansed by water. And that's just before the chapter, if you're familiar with Ezekiel, when, the, uh, when he preaches to the dry bones, the valley of dry bones, and then they're given new life. And so that it's like the Spirit comes on them. And so here he's referencing this famous passage, and basically what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit needs to come on you with the presence of God and the power of God in a really forceful way. What Jesus is saying is that everyone, regardless of their background, must be born again from above by the Holy Spirit to receive eternal life with God. This is the great spiritual equalizer. No matter where you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background is, This puts you all on level playing field. Whether you grew up in the church or you've never walked into a church until today, everyone must be born again. Everyone must start over if they're to come to Jesus. The reality is that in life, some people do have a head start. It's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. If you come from a family with money, you have a head start in life. You have more opportunities given to you. Can you overcome that if you, do, if you don't come? Sure, you can. But the reality is you do come with a set of head starts. If you come from a family where education is expected, you have a bit of a head start on many people. You can overcome adversity, but there's still head starts. There's no head starts in the kingdom of heaven. You might bring your kids to church every week, And you might pray for them. And that is a way to lay a foundation that hopefully the Holy Spirit will take hold of in their heart. But still, your children must be born again. And that is not of a parent's will, but it is only of the Spirit. And so we must ask the Spirit to do this. Depending on where you are in life, this will either hit you as good news or bad news. If you're coming to Jesus with nothing to contribute, if you're coming to Jesus broken and just barely putting it together, barely keeping one foot in front of the next, hurting with a past, this is good news. Because you don't have to contribute anything. It's saying that that your background doesn't contribute to you coming into the kingdom of God, that you have to be born again. This is why prisons are full of new Christians, people that want to come to Jesus because they realize that they don't have 
anything to contribute. And once you realize you don't have anything to contribute, it's a lot easier to come to Jesus. Now, if you're someone that has their life more or less put together, who has a good job, who has friends, the message of Jesus is is more difficult because you think that you have something to contribute and it's difficult to get past that fact that you don't have anything to contribute. This is why planting a church in a place like Somerville is really hard because our neighbors, by and large, have money and they have friends. By and large, of course, there's exceptions, but by and large, it's difficult to convince someone who already has money and friends that they need God. It's difficult, but they do. They do. That's why Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. It's difficult than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's difficult to convince people. Nicodemus, he had a good life. Nicodemus was a moral man, but yet even he needed to be born again. You cannot come to Jesus and say, you know, my life is pretty good. I'm more or less happy with the way that life is going, but you know, I think I need just something a little bit more, just a little bit more, like a little, a little, this chocolate chip cookie's good, it just needs a little bit of salt, okay? You can't come to Jesus and say, my life just needs a little bit of salt, because what Jesus is going to ask you to do is he's going to say, hey, scrap the recipe, let's start over. That's what Jesus does when he comes into our lives. He says, hey, everything that you have to contribute, that is considered as rubbish now. Philippians chapter 3. That's trash. Let's wipe the counter. Let's start over. New birth. And I'm going to start over in you. And it's going to be better than anything that you could make by yourself. That you have to be remade by the gospel. Some of us think, I can't come to Jesus. I need to get my life put together a little bit. I need to, you know... I feel really embarrassed walking into the church because I just, I don't have it put together. If they just knew, if they just knew, they would know that I'm an imposter. This is the home of imposters, okay? None of us have it put together. And those of us who are better at faking it need to come to the reality that all we have is Jesus and that's all we need, amen? Jesus tells us that we cannot get our lives put together by ourselves, that we need him. This is the place where you belong. So who needs to be born again? Everyone. Number two, how can someone be born again? Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? And he asked the question that we're all thinking, how, how, how can these things be? So Jesus explains how someone might be born again. And he does it using this deep cut from the Old Testament. The, the author of John is persistently, continually reminding us and trying to show us that the Jesus that we are reading about is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy and longing. So far, we're in the third chapter here. So far, the author has said, Jesus, he is the very word of God. Jesus, he is the true temple. Jesus, he's the one that's bringing the wine at the wedding feast of the lamb. Every reference, over and over, lamb of God, king of Israel. This is, we're not even four chapters in yet. And here we see another one. And this one is a bit of a deep cut, okay? You have to be a little more uh, well-versed in your Old Testament reading to get this one. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from a heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Like I said, deep cut. This isn't even in the top ten of most uh, well-known stories about Moses. Okay, so what Moses did in this situation, this is actually, it's great analogy, what's happening. Um, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They're out of slavery, and they're wandering around in the desert. And the people of Israel, they complain. And they're saying, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt, Moses? This is like what they do for like 40 years, okay? This is a continual thing throughout the entire book of Numbers. It's referencing this chapter in Numbers. And so they're complaining to Moses about being brought out of slavery, basically. And they're saying, why did you do this? And they're complaining, but their complaining wasn't really against Moses. Their complaining was against God. And so the passage says that God sent fiery serpents into their midst because the only thing worse than a serpent is a fiery serpent. Fiery serpents come into their midst and they start biting them and they're poisonous and it's killing people. And they realize that they've sinned and then they go back to Moses and they beg and, and pray to send away the snakes. And what God tells Moses to do is just strange. What Moses is to do is to make a pole out of bronze and to make a snake out of bronze and to put the snake on the pole and to hold the pole up and when you're bit by the snake all you have to do is look at the pole with the snake on it. Now that's a weird way to heal people. Somehow though, if you think about it though, we've all seen this because to this day our symbol of modern medicine is a pole with a snake on it. That's what it's talking about. God doesn't tell them to do anything. He doesn't say, hey, promise you'll never complain again. Then look at the snake and you'll be healed. He just says, look at the snake. Lift it up. No Hail Marys. No get your act straight. Just look at the snake. And here, 1,500 years, at least 1,500 years later, Jesus is saying, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, and as a result people lived, so I will be lifted up the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life this is how we receive the new birth it's not by going on a week-long spiritual meditation retreat and coming back saying oh i'm a new person it's simply by looking to the man on the cross the one who took on our death as he hung on the cross, as the snake is in the wilderness, Jesus is for us. He became death. He took on our sin and became death. And through his death, we have life. And this is how we are born again. Just by looking to him, all you have to do is look to Jesus, but to look to Jesus means that you have to stop looking to yourself and your own moral, your own morality. You have to just look to Christ and what he has done for you. It's enough. So that's how. Next, what are the results of this new birth? When you're born again, what does it mean? Does it mean you quit your job and you go hand out uh, religious paraphernalia at the tea stop next week? Maybe, but for most of us, no. 
when you're born again, you primarily get two changes in life. Uh, there's a lot of different things I could talk about here, but primarily I want to just talk about two things. First, the result of being born again is you get new spiritual desires. Your desires change. All of a sudden, you want to spend time with Jesus. You want to spend time with God, worshiping God, reading his word. You have a hunger for the word. You have a, a desire for worship. And you get these desires in your motivational core that are changed. You find that the things that you enjoy doing, you might still enjoy doing them, but for totally different reasons. Previously, you worked your job so that you could prove to everyone around you that you were successful, that you were good enough to make it or to feel powerful. But now you work because it brings glory to the Lord. Previously, you would look at other people as objects to satisfy your own desires. Maybe this is through sexual satisfaction or through competition in the workplace, thinking I will dominate over this person. But now, you see all people's image bearers of God, and you want to lay down your life for them as Jesus laid down his life for you. You see, it changes the way that you perceive everything, this motivational core. Previously, you spent your money primarily on the things that would make you happy. And sometimes that meant you'd give a little bit of money away, but you would give away money because ultimately it made you happy, made you feel like a better person. And so what the gospel does is it changes the motivational core of why you do things. And now you see that all of your things belong to God and that you are called to be a steward of those things for his glory. You want to invest your things and your money into the things that God cares about. So the first thing that being born again does is it changes your, it changes your desires. It gives you a spiritual desire. And the second thing that being born again does is it gives you a heart of continual repentance. To be born again doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again. As we see uh, with, the, with the people of Israel wandering around in the desert, this isn't the last time that they complain, okay? It doesn't mean that you never sin again, but it means that you live a heart with a heart of continual repentance. Many of you have been listening to this sermon. Okay, so this is like classic text, right? Classic born again. If you've been a Christian for a while or if you've been in church for a while, you might be listening to the sermon and just saying like, okay, so far, I'm glad we're doing this because I'm sure some people need to hear this, but it just isn't applicable to me. I've been born again for a long time. And so you're just wondering, how do I apply this? And look, this is, this is it right here, okay? It is so easy to slip back into this works-based mentality. And here's how you know you've slipped back into a workspace mentality. It's when you've messed up <laughs> and you realize you've messed up, okay? When you make a mistake, you offend someone, you say something really selfish or whatever it might be, you've messed up. What do you do? Where does your mind go? Well, for most of us, uh, it's like, hey, I don't like that. I, d I don't like that I, sin I sinned. And that's a good thing, okay? Again, fan. Don't like sin. All right, good. But what do you do with that? Well, most of us make a commitment. I'm never going to sin again. I'm never doing this again. We just beat ourselves up and go through this behavior modification just saying, I'll never do it again. And look, don't sin. But are you bearing the punishment for that sin? Are you looking to the man on the cross for healing? Because that sin has been paid for. It's been paid for by Christ. 
Do you look at the one who paid for your sin and allow yourself to be filled with awe and wonder that God would do this sort of thing, that he sent his own son to bear the penalty for the sin, for your sin, for my sin, for the ways that we mess up? It's not that you just look once to Christ. It's that it's a perpetual looking to him. Yes, repent of your sin, but continue to look towards Christ. I've heard it said, for every, this is a very old saying, for every one look that you take at your own heart, take ten looks at Christ. And so, friends, if you feel just beaten up with the effects of sin today, I encourage you to look towards Christ. Last point. Why does God do all this? Okay, if you get to this last point, and this is the question you ask after you hear what I just said about how he took on our sin for us. If you ask, why would he do that? It means you're getting it. Because it's not by our religious behavior, it's something he's already done. So it means you're getting it. Why would God ever do this? You're finally asking the right question. Why would he love a screw-up like me? Why would he do this? And the answer is so simple, yet so profound. It's because he loves us. And that's all there is to it. That God loves you. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And that so, it's like in this way. God showed his love for us in this way. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God has enjoyed perfect relationship with his son throughout eternity past. They've always dwelled in perfect harmony, but yet he was willing to send his son, and the son was willing to give his life so that when we believe in him, as we look to the man on the cross, we're united with Christ, and we're invited to share in eternal joy in the relationship among the three members of the Godhead, among the Trinity. We're invited into the joy that it is in having sacrificial love throughout eternity past into eternity future. He wants to share his existence with us. He wants to bring us into his loving, self-giving, all-satisfying existence. Now, friends, if you look to Christ, that new birth, it doesn't start when you get into heaven, but rather the new birth starts when you trust in Christ. That's when the kingdom of God is beginning in your heart. The reign and rule of God begins the moment you trust in Christ. So eternal life starts today. A lot of times we think about it being at death, but it's today. You get to enjoy the presence of God in part the moment you trust in Christ. And we long for the presence of God in full. And we wait until we get to experience it. But as Christians, we just want to experience more of that presence as it is a taste of heaven. 
We just want to be near to God. And so if you've never done that before, today is the day. Today is the day to say, I, you know, I thought I was a Christian, but nope, <laughs> I wasn't. I was just trusting in myself. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, you know, I grew up in church, but they didn't preach the gospel. And so, um, but now, like I, one day in college, I heard the gospel, finally, someone told me. And everything just, uh, I gave my life to the Lord. And friends, the, the reality is that story is so common. One, there are a lot of churches that don't teach the gospel. But two, I bet a lot of those churches that people grew up in where they didn't ever hear the gospel taught the gospel. But they didn't have ears to hear. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And so maybe today, for the first time, you're like, wait a second. It really means that I don't do anything and that Jesus has done it all. That's what it really means, that he's done it and that he leads us to repentance after we look to him on the cross. That is the gospel. Over and over again, it is good news. And maybe that is you today. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to lead you um, to trust in Christ today. Um, one of the ways that we enjoy this presence of God in part, and one of the ways that we're reminded of it, is through a communion meal. And Jesus said, on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he tore it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And each week when we take a communion meal, it's just a, a little taste. We're reminded in a physical kind of way that Jesus' body was crushed for us and that his blood was shed for us. And we're being reminded of this good news of the gospel. With that being said, I want to invite you to stand and uh, let us pray. Father, we pray that the truth of the new birth would be real to us this morning, that you would remind us of our birth from above, that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation, that we would be like newborn babes, uh, like the first time that we got it. God, may we understand the gospel in that kind of power, with that kind of spirit. And Father, we pray that as we take this communion meal, that you would prepare our hearts for the kingdom of God, that we'd be living for you completely, and that we would trust in what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.